If you have your Bibles, turn with me to James. We're going to be in chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. And if you're visiting us this morning, or you're using a Bible in the chair, it's found on page 1073. And if you do not own a Bible, please take that as a gift from us. James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. If you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Come now, you rich people. Weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored up treasure in the last days. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out. And the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous. Who does not resist you? This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. May 25th, 2020, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, an African-American man named George Floyd sought to, and a clerk called the police, so the police came, and among this, these few was former police officer Derek Chauvin. So they arrive on the scene. They sought to arrest George Floyd. There may have been a bit of a scuffle. He gets detained. He's arrested. He's on the ground. And former officer Chauvin does the unthinkable. He abuses his authority by placing his knee on the neck of George Floyd. There were bystanders there pleading for Officer Chauvin to stop, declaring that you are killing him, pleading for the officers to intervene. In fact, one of the bystanders began to record the entire scene. And in the image, if you watch the video, you would see former officer Chauvin, and the image is one that I just can't ever get out of my mind. What you see on his face and his body language is one of indifference. As his neck, as his knee is on the neck of Mr. Floyd for nine minutes, in 30 seconds, gets up, places Floyd in the police car. Floyd later on goes on to die, began to decry police brutality, injustice, oppression. As the video shook the nation, it was another example of injustice against black and brown people. Well, on May 29th, 2020, 
Derek Chauvin was charged with second-degree murder and other charges. He's arrested and placed in jail. Many began to wonder what will happen for many African Americans have seen this before, where there is some sort of police brutality, there is some sort of arrest, wondering will this happen again of a police officer going free? Well, less than a year later on April 20th, 2021, Chauvin was found guilty on all charges and sentenced to 20 years in prison. The verdict and the sentencing brought comfort and hope for the Floyd family and the black community at large. Beloved, see, for victims of injustice and their families, a word of condemnation for the perpetrators of injustice actually brings hope and comfort to their ears of the Third Reich officials who participated and sought the annihilation of Jews in the Holocaust. Every last one of those officials and soldiers who was sentenced, for the Jews who heard the verdict, it brought comfort and hope. The reality is a guilty verdict and consequences. They are hard words for those who are guilty, but those hard words are words of hope for those who have been oppressed. In our passage this morning, James, he gives hard words of judgment for, or towards, better yet, oppressors of the church. And he is doing this to bring comfort towards Christians who have been oppressed. It is difficult. It is a call to endure suffering on account of his name. Just as our Savior was despised and rejected and suffered, we who follow Jesus are promised that we will experience the same treatment. And here in this life, oftentimes, it see and feels as if our persecutors are getting away with injustice. But this passage gives a sweet promise of hope for the people of God that Jesus Christ will return and that he will judge his enemies. That when Christ returns, he will right all wrongs. And y'all, this truth, it actually gives comfort to the saints who are afflicted. Not only does it give comfort to those who are afflicted, it also sobers us. Because in our affliction, we are prone to envy those who are afflicting us. We are tempted to potentially seek to imitate them. But this word sobers us because James reminds us of their end, the very thing that we have been saved from. And so our big idea from this passage is this. Take comfort that Christ knows our suffering and will judge justly. Take comfort that Christ knows our suffering and will judge justly. The first is cling to Christ. And second, 
take comfort in him. Cling to Christ and take comfort in him. So for a little bit of context, previously at the end of James chapter 4, James rebuked Christian businessmen for their presumptuous planning of their life and future. As they were concerned about their will, not God's, he actually corrected them in this. Well, in this morning's passage, with the very intentions to encourage the audience that he is writing to, he addressed their oppressors who likely weren't in the gathering. Reminding the saints of the judgment that is to come upon the unbelieving oppressors. And so our first point is to cling to Christ. Look at verse 1. James says, come now, you rich people. James addressed the unrighteous rich in the region who abuse their wealth, who oppress the saints. Now, as James addressed the rich, it is not a sin in and of itself to be financially wealthy. In fact, I believe some, in, some who are a part of these churches were actually had financial means. He says in James chapter 1, verse 10, but let the rich boast in his humiliation. Also in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 and 19, Paul is instructing Timothy on how to instruct Christians who are financially wealthy. He tells them to not set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, And tells them to be rich in good works and to be generous. So though it is not a sin in and of itself to be financially rich, we must also be on guard against dismissing James' words. Because the reality is, we who live in America, we are some of the richest people in the world. And there is always a temptation to love and treasure Money. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away. And so, beloved, may we lean in all the more and hear what James has to say. He says, Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Like the prophets of old in the Old Testament, James here is pronouncing judgment upon these unrighteous, wealthy people in the region. They don't love Jesus. He's telling them to mourn and to cry aloud for the condemnation that is coming on them. Now, in Scripture, oftentimes, wailing is in the context of judgment. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6 Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. James is telling them to weep, to mourn, to cry aloud. For though you are living well, now that will not remain. And y'all notice the certainty that James spoke with. He said, He didn't say weep and wail over the miseries that might come or that might possibly come. No, he says weep and wail over the miseries that are coming for you. They are assured of God's judgment in response to their wickedness. 
that they will be judged by God. And why? Because God is holy. God is holy. He is perfectly set apart from all creation, and he is totally, sin is the very antithesis of his nature. And not only is God holy, he is also just. He does what is right. He is the just judge. In fact, in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 to 7, when God displays and reveals his glory and goodness to Moses, God says that he is merciful and compassionate, that he is patient, that he is faithful, and that he is forgiving. And as we hear these things, it causes the heart to swell with great delight because God is all of these things. And at the same time, that's not all that God said about himself. He says that he is merciful and gracious and patient and forgiving and faithful, he also makes known that he is just. And that sobers the heart. In fact, he says that he will not leave the guilty unpunished. God does not ignore any sin. He is the just judge of all the earth who always and only does what is right. The unrighteous here and unbelievers, they have rebelled against God. They have rejected his lordship. They have refused his gracious offer of eternal life and forgiveness that is solely in Christ. And not only that, they have acted unjustly in their possessions and they have hoarded them Look what James says in verse 2 and 3. He says, Your wealth has rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. These unrighteous wealthy people have placed their stock in earthly treasures. Contrary to Jesus' command in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 21, he says, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Folk, James, the people James are addressing, and those like them, they are enamored with materialism. They loved their possessions and are consumed with it. So they got to have the, the Gucci and the Prada and the J's and the riches. In fact, their identity is in these very things. So they have to have the latest gas, most possessions. It was millionaire Michael Forbes who's known for saying the term, the phrase, he who dies with the most toys wins. You know, this is the motto of people who are consumed with earthly treasures. And the reality is, we are constantly inundated with these types of messages. That you have to have more and more possessions. That to have so many possessions means that you are somebody, and to not have them, you are missing out. Well, let me be clear. 
Wealth and nice clothes and money, these are good gifts to be stewarded for the glory of God alone. To be enjoyed and to be used to serve and bless others. These are good gifts to steward, but they are bad gods to serve. They are temporal, fleeting. You hear what James says? He says, your wealth has corroded in decay in light of eternity. He says that, that that Louis V and that J. Crew and them clothes from Lululemon, one day there will be an insect's platter. He says that your riches, they have corroded. Now, our, the ironic thing about this is that gold and silver is known for their durability. The fact that they can't corrupt, and yet in light of eternity, James is saying that they will rust. And y'all, this is why we must cling to Jesus Christ, that we may resist the allure of earthly treasures. This is why we need to constantly be renewed in the minds and reminded of the greatness and supremacy of Jesus Christ. That we not by the lie get caught up in the rat race of trying to have more. We need to constantly be reminded that Jesus Christ is greater. He is far greater. He is glorious. Beloved, the good news of the gospel is that when we trust in Jesus, we get him. And to have him for a moment, but for all of eternity. Heavenly treasure is infinitely and eternally greater than any earthly treasure here. James says here that earthly treasure, they, they, it rots. It, it is clothes or moth-eating. They rust. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter talks about the greatness of the inheritance that by God's grace through the resurrection of Jesus Christ is ours And y'all listen to the adjectives that he uses to describe it. He says that it is imperishable, that it is undefiled, and that it is unfading. It is eternal and indestructible. It is far greater than any earthly treasure one could ever have here. That's why we sung and hold to God's unchanging hand, covet not this world's vain riches that so rapidly decay. We instruct one another to seek to gain the heavenly treasure, for they will never pass away. Heavenly treasure is ours in Jesus Christ, and that's why we have to cling to him. James went on to assure the certainty of their judgment because how they lived in this life. He says, you have... There was no concern at all for eternal matters for them. They had no spiritual sight. Their minds were only set upon this life, not knowing that we are in the last days. Let's talk about the last days real quick. The last days, it is the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. When the Old Testament prophets spoke about the day of the Lord, that day when Christ will come, 
They talk about how there would be judgment for God's enemies and salvation for God's people. They spoke about one day not knowing that there will be two comings. That Christ has come once to save his people by being the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That he has inaugurated the kingdom. And, and, and the next thing, not the next thing, but the thing that we await now is the return of Jesus Christ. That is the great day. And so what that means is that we are living in the last days now and also that today is the day of salvation. James is saying that they were utterly aloof and apathetic towards this reality. That as we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and hold out the hope of eternal life in Christ, they would rather ignore our message, not knowing that Christ will return, that this evil age will give way to the next. Which is, that age is far eternally greater, for it is freed from sin, pure and holy. Christ will consummate his kingdom. The reality is, beloved, the king and kingdom that you treasure in this life will have direct implications on where you spend your eternity. James is assuring the unrighteous oppressors of the judgment that is to come. This passage speaks a lot about judgment. It also speaks a lot about money. They hoarded the money. They, as we see in verses 4 to 6, they abused the money and spent it selfishly. And the problem isn't that they had money. The problem is that they loved it and cherished it, not Christ and his kingdom. You know, this pronouncement of judgment should sober and warn us to not live for earthly treasures, the very things that we're tempted towards. We are tempted to pursue riches. We are tempted to desire this type of lifestyle, to keep up with the Joneses. And James is saying that life don't end well. So how do we resist these desires? Well, we was, I would say, man, seek Christ constantly. Cling to Jesus Christ alone and treasure him and his kingdom. Meditate on passages about eternity and the kingdom that God is promising. We, man, read the prophetic books and think about, meditate on passages about the day of the Lord and see the sweetness of what it says for the people of God. I love it the best way. To not love money is to live beneath your means and be generous with it. To invest eternally with the finances that God has given you. To give generously to your local church. God and the advancement of God's kingdom. And members, y'all know this, for we are very honest about the budget at every member's meeting. Our purpose in the money that God gives is to steward it for the advancement of the gospel. And so God, for Christ's name to be magnified across the earth. Give generously to church planting organizations desiring for healthy churches to be in more urban communities. 
Why do I say all of this? Well, I say all this because the reality is, beloved, our bank statements are heart statements. They actually reveal what we treasure. So the question is, what do your bank statements say where your treasure is? Is God and his kingdom? Or are we enamored by this age? Love, this would be really good to talk with other members about, specifically in your D groups or in your homes, with your roommates and husbands. Lead the conversation with your wife about these matters. Love, we're to cling to Christ. The reality is the more we cling to him and are consumed with him and his glory, the more generously we will be. And why? Because more we want to see others treasure our glorious king. So may we cling to Christ and may we also, also take comfort in him. That's our second point, take comfort in Jesus James went on to lay specific charges against the unrighteous. The pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. You know, these were unjust landowners. They cheated and defrauded their employees. As they employed farmers to work their fields, the work was done, and yet they withheld the money. They didn't honor their word. They didn't love their neighbors. In fact, they deprived their neighbors on what was due them. And this is a clear violation of God's command. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 and 15 says, Do not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether one is your Israelite brother or one of the resident aliens in a town in your land. You are to pay him his wages each day before the sun sets because he is poor and depends on them. Otherwise, he will cry out to the Lord against you and you will be held guilty. It's the very thing that these unrighteous, wealthy landowners did. They deprived their neighbors. The money was decrying injustice. Don't know how that happens, but it did. And not only that, The workers also decried injustice, and God heard their cries. It says, the outcry of the armies. The Lord heard their cries of distress and cries of oppression. Just like how Israel was oppressed and enslaved in Egypt, and they cried out in Exodus chapter 2, says, the Lord heard. Well, here, these people are crying out, and the Lord heard their cries. Beloved, let's be clear. God always sees the afflictions of his people. He always sees them. He is never oblivious to them. He sees the shameful treatment from employers, from colleagues, from neighbors, persecution that his people experience. He sees it all, and when his people cry out, even the most silent prayer the Lord hears. He has compassion upon his people. He bottles their tears, and he promises that he will act in his timing. 
Y'all, this word, the fact that it says that their cries have heard to bring hope towards those who are suffering. That God hears our prayers. That afflicted saints, we can draw near to Jesus Christ. This actually debunks the very things that we are prone to assume in the midst of suffering. We're prone to wonder, God, do you actually care? God, do you see us? God, do you hear us? James is making clear that he does. That the cries have reached their ears and that he will act in his timing. Beloved, know that when God seems to be inactive, know that he is never indifferent. And may we not misconstrue his patience for passivity. For God is actively at work. He is sustaining. He is comforting. He is caring. He is providing through his people. He is upholding. And one day he will act on our behalf. The fact that they are crying out testifies to the reality that life is hard. Injustices happen. Suffering is real. But it's also instructive for us to cry out to God in prayer. For he loves to hear us. He says, cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. Parents, we know that life is hard. The longer we live, I feel like there are more and more fears that we have, and then we have kids. And those fears increase all the more. And we're confronted with our finitude because we can't shelter our children from unfair and unjust treatment. As much as we want to, we can't. But here's what we can do. We can have compassion. We can seek to help them when they experience it. We can and should teach them that this is a part of life in a fallen world. That these things are really sad and these things happen. It's the consequence of living in a sinful world. But may we not stop there. May we also teach them what to do when they're treated unfairly, when they perceive that they have been treated unjustly. May we teach them that they can and should cry out to God, that we can pray about these things because God's people have always prayed about these matters. And may we not stop there. May we show them what that looks like. James says that the cries have reached the ears of the Lord of armies. This is a common name for God throughout the scriptures. It is mentioned over 200 times between the Old and New Testament, and it gets at the fact that God has all authority. He has a host of heaven behind him, and that he is the God of war against his enemies. 
that he is the God of vengeance, that he intervenes on behalf of his people and that he will bring about victory for them. That he is the defender of his people and their avenger for vengeance belongs to him. In response to oppression and wickedness, his wrath is aroused. For this oppression and wickedness towards fellow, his image bearers and especially his covenant people. He sees it and he will judge. James went on to lay out more charges. He says in verses 5 and 6, you have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts. Who does not resist you? They had selfish purposes for the using of their wealth. They use it to indulge in their fleshly desires, like wild parties in the Great Gatsby. And not only that, but they also persecuted Christians. James has already alluded to this in chapter 2, verse 6, when he says, Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? They abuse their finances. They abuse the judicial system to inflict terror upon the saints. James says that you murder the righteous. And whether that is literal or, is, or indirectly by withholding the finances that is their due for their work, either way, what we see here is charge after charge after charge being brought on them. These charges are clear, they're concrete, they're specific. And it just testifies to the truth that God says about himself in Exodus chapter 34, verse 7, that he will not clear the guilty. That sinners will give an account before him. And on that day, when they stand before the just judge, there will be no dispute of charges and there will be no denial. Because God sees it all and he records it all. Revelation chapter 20 talks about how he's going to open up the books. As he's recorded all the sins that have been committed. And he, so friends, if you are here this morning and you know yourself to not be a Christian, I am glad that you are here. I want you to know that God is holy and God is just. He does not take sin lightly. He finds it very offensive. And he sees it all, and not only that, none will get away. And he is also merciful. The good news of the gospel is that God knows all of our sins, and yet he sent his son to die for our sins, to be a sacrifice that sinners who deserve his judgment may go free and be forgiven by trusting in his son alone. He offers you life. He offers you forgiveness because his son was crushed in the stead of sinners. Friends, we would implore you this very day, to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ that you may have life. If you want, you can talk with any of the members after service. 
We love having these convos about Christ and the gospel of Jesus. He guaranteed that the wicked will be judged. He said, you live luxurious on the earth. You have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. That phrase, the day of slaughter, is, it is referring to judgment day. And Christ will return and that he will judge. We see this in Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 3, and Isaiah chapter 30, verse 25. You have talking about how these unrighteous rich people, they have lived luxuriously here, but on that day there will be a great reversal. And those who are unrighteous, who are at the top of the world, because they have rejected Jesus Christ and the life that he offers, they will be at the bottom of a fiery lake. Jesus gets at this in our scripture reading, Luke chapter 6, verse 24 and 25. He says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Woe to you who are now full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing, for you will mourn and weep. This is true for all unbelievers because they have rejected Jesus Christ and the life that is in him. Not wanting the forgiveness of sins and not wanting to be a member of his family and be an heir, a co-heir in his kingdom. To reject Jesus Christ in this life is to be condemned by him in the life to come. Beloved, to Scorn the lamb who was slain inevitably leads to being devoured by the lion of Judah. Sin is serious. God finds it very offensive. He is given a way out from the judgment and it's solely and only and exclusively through his son Christ. Know that this word that James is giving, it is intended to comfort the saints who are oppressed by their oppressors. And we need this word just like they needed it. Because in our distress to others, we are prone to assume that others are favored by God because of the season that they're in, because of the possessions that they have, because of their status or their tax bracket. How many of us are guilty of that, thinking, woe is me because of really favor them because of how sweet their season of life is? When the reality is, the possessions of wealth and a comfortable season of life is not the indicator of God's favor. The indicator of God's favor on our lives is having Jesus Christ. Being in Christ is the sole and utmost indicator, the greatest of indicators of God's favor in our life. Not our season that we're in, but the Savior who we have. That is the greatest indicator because that guarantees us that one day our suffering will end. That is why we are to take comfort in Jesus Christ. We take comfort in him because everybody will suffer. For the saints, we suffer now. 
And it is light and momentary, for we know that one day he will bring it to an end. About the great reversal. Well, on that final day, that great reversal will be in the favor of all who have trusted in him. For we suffer now, and yet by the grace of God, on that day we'll be reigning with Jesus. We are brought low right now, but when Christ returns, we will be exalted. We have the cross right now, but on that day it will be exchanged for a crown. We are grieving right now, but on that final day we will have gladness for all of eternity. Beloved, we take comfort because on that final day, Christ will return and he will right all wrongs. He will bring justice to where there is injustice, and he will wipe away every tear. Beloved, we can take comfort because the day of the Lord for us is not a day of slaughter. Why? Because of God's grace towards us in Christ. Because the love that God has showed us in giving his son and drawing us to himself to where we believe in him. And his reason is because Christ was slaughtered in our stead. Beloved, we live because he died. Our debt is cleared because Jesus was condemned. For us, the day of the Lord is a day of salvation where we will see with physical eyes the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Where we will see and meet our bridegroom, our king, our savior, and we will never depart from him. And he who promised is faithful. These are hard words that James has given the oppressor, and it's intended to comfort and help the saints being reminded that Christ sees our suffering and he will act on our behalf. And beloved, the day of the Lord, we are one day closer towards that very day. So what are we to do right now? We are to cling to him and take comfort in him as we await his imminent return. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do... praise you for the atoning sacrifice of our Savior and the grace that in him we have life. In him we have forgiveness. In him we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Father, we pray for you did before the foundation of the world as you have chosen us and you continue to look upon us even now. Lord, may we take comfort in our King as we await his return. May we help one another in this as we see the day drawing near. In Christ's name, amen.